Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, Chapter 40 This is the second chapter in a four-chapter segment where Alma addresses his son, Corianton. We know that Alma addressed Corianton's older brother, Helaman, in Alma chapters 36 and 37. And then he spoke to Shiblon in Alma chapter 38. And so again, in Alma chapters 39 through 42, Corianton is addressed. In the previous chapter, Corianton's behavior was spoken of at length, and Alma gave him specific behavioral admonitions. Towards the end of that chapter, Alma began to speak of specific doctrines. This is the pattern that he will follow through chapter 40, 41, and 42 as he speaks with Corianton. This reflects the understanding that we gain from the text that Corianton had doctrinal misunderstandings. We spoke in the previous chapter about the way in which doctrine affects behavior. We talked about how it is that someone on Korahor's end of the spectrum, who believes that there is no Christ and that there's no such thing as sin, will feel well justified in all manner of riotous living. Then we talked about the effect on the other end of the continuum, upon a person who has a true understanding of the justice of God and how its demands must be met, how there most certainly will be a restoration, there will be a resurrection, and gratefully how there was an atonement, or I should say there was an atoning act uh, as a centerpiece of Heavenly Father's plan and how there is an atonement that we can look to And this, of course, is the atonement of Jesus Christ, which allows us to draw upon his power. But on that end of the spectrum, if those doctrines are understood, then, of course, it's natural for one to use his or her agency to obey God and to keep his commandments and to honor him and to look forward with faith, or as Alma said, with an eye of faith, to these great future events of resurrection and judgment and the point at which we can live with God again and partake of the fruits of that great tree of life. Well, we discovered in Alma chapter 39 that along that continuum, Corianton was not in a good place. He made grave mistakes while he was serving a mission in Antionum. And we read that during his mission, while set apart as a missionary, he stole away to the land of Siren and sought out the harlot Isabel. Once Alma discussed his behavior and the problems with the sins that he had committed in the early part of that chapter, he began the process in verse 15, in the last segment of that chapter, in verses 15 through 19, of discussing doctrine. And again, that's the pattern that Alma will follow through the remainder of these chapters, then ending in Alma chapter 42 
with some final pieces of behavioral admonitions. So the first doctrine that was discussed in the previous chapter was the coming of Christ. Alma talked about the glad tidings delivered by an angel of the coming of Christ as he spoke to Corianton. And he said, And now, my son, I will ease your mind somewhat on this subject. Then as he opens chapter 40, Alma continues to use this spirit of discernment as he speaks to his son and says, I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. So this is the next specific doctrinal issue that Alma will discuss with Corianton. And that's what chapter 40 will be dedicated to. We'll discover that the concept of restoration is discussed in Alma chapter 41, and then the great doctrine of justice and mercy and atonement is discussed in Alma chapter 42. So to focus in on the doctrine of restoration in Alma chapter 40, we have this commentary from Ogden and Skinner. Alma was a model of a perceptive father who is trying to counsel with and bless his son. And through the inspiration available to all parents, he began to zero in on Corianton's real issue, a profound doctrinal question. Why was Corianton worried concerning the resurrection of the dead? Because if a person claimed that there is no life after this one, and no resurrection to live forever, that reasoning could be used to further justify sinning. Live it up here in mortality, go after whatever your body wants here in this life, because there's nothing afterwards. It was important for Alma to resolve his son's doubt. At that time, about 73 BC, there was understandably some curiosity about the nature of resurrection. There was still no such thing as resurrection. For nearly 4,000 years, people had been dying and their bodies remained dead. The Savior had not yet lived and died to overcome the effects of physical death and provide immortality for all of Heavenly Father's children. There was still relatively little revealed on the subject, except for what the prophets had specifically asked about. Alma had inquired diligently to know about resurrection, and this chapter is full of what he learned from heavenly sources. When Ogden and Skinner say that Alma learned these things from heavenly sources, we'll read in verse 3 that Alma tells Corianton, I will show unto you one thing which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know, that is concerning the resurrection. Just as with the coming of Christ, the resurrection is a historical issue for us as members of the church in the final dispensation. We see that Easter morning and the Savior's uh, resurrection from the dead as a foregone conclusion, as a, as a part of his story when we read it in the four Gospels. This is a very different perspective from those who lived with him during the meridian of time, who had seen him perform incredible miracles, which did include raising Lazarus from the dead and others from the dead, but in so doing he brought them back to mortality. But for the spirit and body to be reunited again after death, and for one to be raised to immortality as a result, something that Alma will carefully explain in this chapter, was totally and completely without precedent. We might rightly call it the greatest miracle of all time. President Gordon B. Hinckley once wrote, and this was a general conference address delivered on Easter morning of April 1994. He said, For all of Christendom, for all of mankind, Today is observed as the anniversary of the greatest miracle in human history. It is the miracle that encompasses all who have lived upon the earth, all who now live upon the earth, all who will yet live upon the earth. Nothing done before or since has so affected mankind as the atonement wrought by Jesus of Nazareth, who died on Calvary's cross 
was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and on the third day rose from the grave as the living Son of the living God, the Savior and Redeemer of the world. So I think it's good to remember that during this time of around 73 B.C., that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and even his coming to the earth was not a foregone conclusion to one like Corianton. For one like Alma, who looked forward with an eye of faith, perhaps it was. But it most certainly had not happened yet along a mortal timeline. But both for those who looked forward to that event during this Book of Mormon time, and for us who look back upon that event, we see it as the greatest miracle in human history. And we can draw upon these very timeless teachings from Alma to his son Corianton to better understand the mechanics of this great miracle and to look forward to the time when we too, like the Savior did, when we too can rise from the dead. In other words, one day that greatest of miracles will also happen to each of us. And as Alma teaches Corianton in verse 23 of this chapter, the soul shall be restored to the body. And here we're not just talking about the Savior's resurrection, but we're talking about our eventual resurrection. The soul shall be restored to the body, and the body to the soul. Yea, and every limb and joint shall be restored to its body. Yea, even a hair of the head shall not be lost, but all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. Well, now to look at the layout of this chapter. In verses 1 through 5, we find Alma teaching Corianton about the resurrection, where all will rise from the dead. Christ certainly will come, as Alma had established at the end of the previous chapter. Uh, Then he will live his life in mortality. He will be resurrected. And then following him, all will be resurrected. It's quite incredible, really, to think of this greatest of miracles that only this perfect being could achieve is then extended to all mankind. In verses 6 through 14, Alma will discuss the time that takes place between our death and our resurrection. As Alma will say in verse 6, now there must needs be a space betwixt the time of death and the time of resurrection. So he'll talk about that space and who is there and what takes place during that time. Then in verses 15 through 18, we find Alma clarifying the meaning of the term resurrection. He makes it clear that the preliminary judgment that he had discussed in the previous section is not what we term a first resurrection, um, but that instead, very specifically, the resurrection is the reuniting of the soul and the body, as he will say in verse 18. Alma will then discuss the timing of the resurrection in verses 19 through 21, and he will tell Corianton that he doesn't know all of the answers with respect to the timing of the resurrection. He says, whether the souls and the bodies of those whom has been spoken shall all be reunited at once, the wicked as well as the righteous, I do not say. So in this regard, with Corianton, Alma is wondering exactly when uh, when this will happen, what the timing is. He'll say in 20, verse 20, that I give it as my opinion that the souls and the bodies are reunited of the righteous at the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. Now here really, after discussing the timing in verses 22 through 24, is where Alma will talk more specifically about the mechanics of the resurrection itself and the way in which the soul and body is reunited. And then that beautiful verse I read earlier about um, every limb and joint being restored and every hair of the head not being lost. 
We'll read some great commentary on that. Then finally, in verses 25 through 26, we'll consider how it is that judgment seems to immediately follow after resurrection, and we'll talk about the effect of this resurrection upon the righteous versus the effect of this resurrection upon the wicked. Well, with that, let's return to a reading of this chapter in verse 1. Again, remembering that at the end of the previous chapter, the subject at hand was the coming of Christ. Verse 1, Now, my son, here is somewhat more I would say unto thee. Again, he's adding to this coming of Christ. For I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. So to the question of why this subject comes up here, uh, one answer, of course, is that Alma perceives through the spirit of discernment that that is a concern that Corianton has. But also Elder Holland has said this, Alma made it very clear that if our works are good in this life and the desires of our hearts are good, then in the resurrection we will be restored to that which is good. But by the same token, if our works are evil, then our reward will be the restoration of evil in the resurrection. To Corianton, who apparently was taking casually some of these points of doctrine, Alma expressed strongly that no one should fallaciously assume that the restorative powers of the resurrection could restore one from sin to happiness. That can never be, for wickedness never was happiness, uh, which is a phrase that we'll read later as Alma is speaking to him. So that's uh, out of Elder Holland's Christ in the New Covenant. Now verse 2, Behold, I say unto you that there is no resurrection, or I would say in other words, that this mortal does not put on immortality, this corruption does not put on incorruption, and those would be ways of defining resurrection, until after the coming of Christ. Reynolds and Sojal have written this in their Book of Mormon commentary about resurrection. Among the many teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we bear to the world, there are none that have created more speculation as has the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. The fact that there is a resurrection of the dead is plainly noted by every believer in Christ, but the metaphysics of how our bodies will be raised from the grave has brought forth many arguments, both pro and con. Skeptics delight to twist and turn every promise made to us concerning the certainty of this grand and remarkable experience. Believers exultingly proclaim it. The incredulous, with equal fervor, deny it. We may imagine that Paul, in preaching it to the Corinthians, introduced his paean in praise to God for his great triumph over death by declaring it thusly, You may wonder at it, ye sophists of Greece and ye incredulous of Rome, but this poor body that you see with all its certain traces of death shall be swallowed up in everlasting and glorious victory. O death, he said, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And then in a most triumphant voice he shouted, Thanks be to God, which giveth giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Behold, he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. But behold, my son, the resurrection is not yet. Now I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept, that no one knoweth save God himself. But I show unto you one thing which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know, that is concerning the resurrection. This is quite interesting to see Alma speaking of mysteries. We can remember the time in Alma chapter 12 when he was speaking to Zeezrom and the court and people that were assembled in Ammonihah, and he talked to them about mysteries. Here we come to realize that that process of understanding and of growing in the knowledge of the works of God was very personal for Alma, and we discover that something that he has inquired diligently about is resurrection. 
Well, this from uh, Ogden and Skinner. There are many mysteries which are kept, and no one knoweth them save God himself. And by the way, that's a quote from the verse we had just read. Doctrine and Covenants, section 25, verse 4, says something kind of similar. It says, Murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen, for they are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. Now Ogden and Skinner continue, There are many things that in our present mortal state of weakness and nothingness, and with our limited scope of understanding, we are not yet prepared to receive. Articles of Faith, number 9, clearly teaches that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We should never lose faith in the things we already know because of the things we do not yet know. We are, however, at liberty to inquire of the Lord about things we sincerely want to know, as Alma did. Here is one example. To the world, and to the worldly, the resurrection is a mystery. In fact, even to those of the household of faith, it is incomprehensible and inexplicable. How is it that a dead body can return to life, join with the immortal spirit, and acquire godlike glory and power in the process? It is beyond mortal mind to fathom such a thing. But the spirit whispers and experience teaches that such is true and real. And there with that last statement, Ogden and Skinner were quoting McConkie and Millet, actually. So I think besides learning about resurrection specifically, we learned something very critical from Alma here, and that is that it sometimes devolves upon us to go directly to God and to learn more about his mysteries through the process of personal revelation. Answers, of course, are contained in the scriptures, but there are still gaps and still things that Alma wanted to understand better. Uh, Even with all of the scripture that he had access to, there was still much about resurrection that he didn't understand. The same can be true for us. The other thing I think that's worth noting, uh, as we go to the Lord in prayer and um, speak to him in this way, desiring to understand his mysteries more carefully. And of course, we know that they're laid under a strict charge, and that was Alma's language in Alma chapter 12. But that as we do so, the Lord, through the power of his Spirit, can also help us to formulate the correct questions which precede these answers. And that order is a very important part of this. Uh, We don't want to receive these answers out of order. Now, continuing in verse 4, Behold, there is a time appointed that all shall come forth from the dead. Now when this time cometh, no one knows, but God knoweth the time which is appointed. That's language that we use with reference to the second coming of Christ. But here, before he had even arrived at the meridian of time and before he had been resurrected, that language or that style of speaking is applied to that, saying no one knows except God who knows the time which is appointed. Of course, what Alma is actually referring to here is the resurrection of all to come forth from the dead, which is actually a future event from us as well. So I'm kind of misspeaking there, I guess. But verse 5, Now, whether there shall be one time or a second time or a third time, that men shall come forth from the dead, it mattereth not, for God knoweth all these things. And it sufficeth me to know that this is the case, that there is a time appointed that all shall rise from the dead. So when is that time? Alma doesn't know exactly, but it sufficeth him to know that there is a time, and that incredibly, in addition to the Savior himself rising from the dead and becoming immortal, not rising from the dead like Lazarus to become immortal, but to be a resurrected immortal, uh, this is something that will be granted to all. There is a time appointed that all shall rise from the dead. 
Now Alma will move into discussing the timing of this a little bit more, but specifically this time between death and resurrection. So now he's kind of going back a little bit. So verse 6, now there must needs be a space betwixt the time of death and the time of the resurrection. So it's here where in addition to resurrection, we're going to be taught about this probationary period of time, not mortal probation per se, but this other period of time when there's something like a preliminary judgment once we have died and our spirits have gone to this place that we refer to as the spirit world and the the time between that event and the time that we're resurrected. So verse 6, now there must needs be a space betwixt the time of death and the time of resurrection. And now I would inquire what becometh of the souls of men from this time of death to the time appointed for the resurrection. Now, whether this is more than one time appointed for men to rise, it mattereth not, for all do not die at once, and this mattereth not. All is as one day with God, and time only is measured unto man. So we can see here that we're right on the edge of Alma's own understanding. He he is not sure exactly about this timing himself, and says, I would inquire what becometh of the souls of men from this time of death to the appointed time of resurrection. This is an amazing statement in Scripture to read so definitively from Alma that all is as one day with God and time only is measured unto men. This suggests that we're not only limited in our vision right now and in what it is that we can perceive, and of course we can only think of one thing at a time, something that Hugh Nibley once pointed out as a differentiator between us and God, but that also our very linear concept of the passage of time, is something that God is not bound to, and instead everything is one great now. All is as one day with God. I think that can suggest to us that even though we're in the middle of this probationary state, and that we do live within this mortal framework where we are so limited in our perception, that in a very real sense, eternity is now, and the choices that we're making are inextricably linked to our eternal fate and our eternal outcomes. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written, The great challenge of our lives is usually not meditating on what we once were or wishing on what we may be, what we may yet become, but rather living in the present moment as God would have us live. Fortunately, Christ can be in that moment for each of us, since all things are present before him, and time only is measured unto men. That previous statement, all things are present before him, is found in Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 2. Now, verse 9, Alma says, Therefore, there is a time appointed unto men that they shall rise from the dead, and there is a space between the time of death and the resurrection. And now concerning this space of time, so that's really the, the issue in question in this particular section, this space between death and between resurrection. Now concerning the space of time, what becometh of the souls of men is the thing which I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know, and this is the thing of which I do know. So Alma is implying here that after having inquired diligently, he has come to know this thing. Now this is very curious to us. Could it be that uh, he studied scripture as he inquired diligently of the Lord to understand what happens to people during this space of time, and he found the answers in Scripture, or could it be that while studying Scripture, those answers came to him uh, through the power of the Holy Ghost? We know that both processes are mediated by the Holy Ghost, and that sometimes we find the answers we seek very explicitly in verses of Scripture, but that other times the Holy Ghost will speak to us and uh, teach us things that 
don't even appear to be directly related to what it is that we're reading. The same thing, of course, can happen when we're in a meeting and listening to talk or participating in a talk. I might, I might add, Elder Eyring has talked about that, how it is that if we pray for the person that is speaking, that we can be uh, communicated to by heaven. It's also a process that's discussed in the 50th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So exactly how this happened for Alma, we don't know, but we can guess that when he inquired diligently, he also searched available scripture. Ultimately, he did come to know uh, much that he will now share with Corianton and, of course, with us about this period of time between death and resurrection. So he says in verse 10, And when the time cometh, when all men shall rise, then shall they know that God knoweth the times which are appointed unto man. Now that's a little bit of suspense because there's some commentary here that I'd like to read before we circle back around to this thing that Alma has come to know, where he says at the end of verse 9, this thing of which I do know, which really piques our curiosity. So he's going to talk about that uh, here in verse 11. Let me first read this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual uh, regarding this phrase, all is as one day with God. After testifying to Corianton of the reality of the resurrection, Alma expressed uncertainty of the timing of the resurrection as it relates to all mankind. Such concerns did not matter to Alma, for he said, All is as one day with God. The prophet Joseph Smith revealed that for God all things are manifest past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. And that's a statement out of Doctrine and Covenants section 130, verse 7. Elder Nile Maxwell explained how things are done in God's way. Quote, God was redemptively at work long before mortal time began on this earth, and he will still be at work even after mortal time is no more. Mercifully, things then will be done in God's own way, not ours. Then God's purposes, his patience, his power, and his profound love, which were at work long before time was, will also be at work even after time will be no more. These and other truths are among what Paul called the deep things of God. It's a statement Paul made in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. That's out of Elder Maxwell's book called A Wonderful Flood of Light. The prophet Joseph Smith also said that the great Jehovah contemplated the whole of the events connected with the earth pertaining to the plan of salvation before it rolled into existence. Or ever the morning stars sang together for joy, the past, the present, and the future were and are with him one eternal now. Now verse 11, coming back to this thing that Alma has come to know. Now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. I think the word home here is intensely interesting that Alma would refer to their return after dying to a place that he would call home, that home were uh, taken home to God who gave them life. I personally like to think that when that time comes for each of us, there will be an intensely familial feeling. We will most certainly recognize who we see there, and they will recognize us. And it will feel like home, I think. And we'll hope very much that we have um, conducted ourselves honorably so that we might be on that trajectory to someday attain the fruit of the tree of life and be in the presence of God. Well, the suspense continues here because there's quite a lot of uh, commentary to read on this great verse. 
But we have yet to come to what Alma was speaking of when he said, This thing I do know. It'll start to come in verse 12. But first, I'll read commentary from Ogden and Skinner on this idea of the spirits of men being taken home to that God who gave them life. They say of that teaching of Alma, President George Q. Cannon wrote, He does not intend to convey the idea that they are immediately ushered into the personal presence of God. He evidently uses that phrase in a qualified sense. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained, Taken home to God, and by the way, compare Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, which says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it, simply means that their mortal existence has come to an end, and they have returned to the world of spirits where they are assigned to a place according to their works with the just or with the unjust, there to, await, uh, there to await the resurrection. And that is the spoiler. That's what Alma will teach us here in just a moment. On this point, the Savior is our best, most important witness. We know that not even he was taken immediately into the presence of his Father after his death. He went to the world of spirits. And Doctrine and Covenants section 138 teaches us about that. And even after his own resurrection, being the first fruits of them that slept, he said to the first mortal to see his resurrected body, and I have to add, that phrase, the first fruits of them that slept, uh, was spoken by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. So he said to the first mortal to see his resurrected body on that occasion, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. That's out of John chapter 20, verse 17. In Latter-day Saint theology, there are actually two heavens where God resides and where his jurisdiction extends to his children on this earth. Brother Ogden realized after his father died that he now had two fathers in heaven, his immortal father and his mortal father. Although their two places of residence are the two different definitions we have of heaven, one heaven is where the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost reside, far out in space near Kolob. The other heaven is the immediate surroundings, the atmosphere around this earth. That is the earth spirit or the spirit world. That's where Brother Ogden's father is now. President Brigham Young helped us understand the difference between these two heavens. When you lay down this tabernacle, he said, where are you going? Into the spiritual world. Where is the spirit world? It is right here. Do the good and evil spirits go together? Yes, they do. Do they both inhabit one kingdom? Yes, they do. That is, the righteous and wicked occupy together one world of spirits, although there are separate venues in that world for each, and a chasm, goal for some kind of barrier separates them there. See Doctrine and Covenants section 138, which is, of course, Joseph F. Smith's vision of the redemption of the dead. And that's a little inclusion in Brigham Young's quotation from Ogden and Skinner. Now Brigham Young continues, Do they go beyond the boundaries of the organized earth? No, they do not. They are brought forth upon this earth. Alma's increasing understanding of the doctrine of heavenly home is another example of revelation that comes line upon line, precept upon precept, which of course is is language we see elsewhere that helps us to understand uh, what Alma was talking about in Alma chapter 12, about attaining unto the mysteries of God, which are laid under a strict charge and are clearly, as are the doctrines themselves, linked to our own faithful behavior and the way in which that uh, we, we live according to the truth that we've been given. Now we come to this thing that Alma knows in verse 12, which is something like a preliminary judgment. And then it shall come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. 
Now, before focusing in on this idea of paradise, remember again that the context here is what Brigham Young just described in that piece of commentary, which is that all, the wicked and the righteous, will be in the same realm. Uh, They will be in this world of spirits that belongs to this very world. However, within that realm, Alma is teaching us here that there is a state of happiness, which is called paradise for some, for some. And then, as he'll teach us in a moment, there's a place for the spirits of the wicked. So again, this is not final judgment. This is a preliminary judgment. Regarding this paradise that Alma has described in verse 12, Ogden and Skinner say, Troubles, care, and sorrow are an intentional and essential part of mortality. We were not sent down here to be comfortable. Earth life is a testing ground of faith and obedience, and it purposefully includes adversity. However, there will come a deserved rest from the troubles, care, and sorrow, but only for the righteous. Verse 13, And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of the wicked, yea, who are evil, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the Spirit of the Lord. For behold, they chose evil works rather than good. Therefore the spirit of the devil did enter into them, and take possession of their house, and these shall be cast out into outer darkness." There shall be weeping and wailing, and gnashing of teeth, and this because of their own iniquity, being led captive by the will of the devil. Now this is the state of the souls of the wicked, yea, in darkness, and a state of awful, fearful, looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. Thus they remain in this state, as well as the righteous in paradise, until the time of their resurrection. So again, a preliminary judgment and a very unhappy thing, um, to put it in in a very kind of trite way, happens to those who are wicked. Remember the circumstances here for this conversation. Alma is speaking to Corianton, and Corianton seems to have been in a state where he was denying the justice of God. He needed to be reminded that there would be such an eventuality for him, and it would come as soon as he had died. Alma spoke in Alma chapter 12, about this moment of judgment, and if the word is not found in you, you'd wish that you could hide before God and have the mountains cover your, just cover you. And then in Alma chapter 36, he talked about wishing for his own extinction when he thought of standing before God in the shame of his sins. He gives us the impression here in verse 14 that those who are wicked, uh, when they come to this place, they are in a state of awful, fearful looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. So they are racked, to use Alma's word in Alma chapter 36, with this idea that God will come upon them in his wrath. And uh, so they are feeling naked in their shame, we might say. And so they they are feeling something very similar to this terrible thing that Alma discussed in Alma chapter 12 and 36, where you, you wish the mountains could cover you, or in 36 you wish for your extinction. This is the state of the wicked then in this preliminary judgment, in this phase in the spirit world. They have not yet been resurrected and been judged finally and assigned a degree of glory, but they have passed through mortality uh, and have uh, lost the advantages of that phase of their probationary state. Since we know that the gospel is still preached to those in the spirit world who are in this state, We know that there still is some semblance of probation during this period of time wherein man can still repent. However, we know that it's much harder to do so and that these who have gone to this place 
in the spirit world are on a very terrible trajectory. Then ultimately, as Alma said earlier, actually I think it was Amulek, there will be a night of darkness wherein no labor can be performed. Here's some commentary from the book True to the Faith. When the physical body dies, the spirit continues to live. In the spirit world, the spirits of the righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. A place called spirit prison is reserved for those who have died in their sins without a knowledge of the truth or in transgression having rejected the prophets. The spirits in prison taught the gospel. If they accept, they will be welcomed into paradise. So before moving farther into Alma's teachings, let's pause for a moment and discuss where this spirit world is one more time. And we've, uh, Ogden and Skinner have provided quotes from Brigham Young, or one particular quote from Brigham Young that helps us to understand this. Here's something from Thomas Arvaleta, where he also pulls from Brigham Young, and we'll read some of the same things from him, but he also pulls from Bruce R. McConkie and kind of brings all of this together. So here is from Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide. President Brigham Young taught that when individuals die, they all pass through the veil from this state and go into the world of spirits, and there they dwell waiting for their final destiny. The world of spirits, or this world of spirits, is taught by President Brigham Young as very close. Quote, it is not beyond the sun, but is on this earth that was organized for the people that have lived and that do and will live upon it. Where is the spirit world? It is right here. Do the good and evil spirits go together? Yes, they do. Do they both inhabit one kingdom? Yes, they do. Do they go to the sun? No. Do they go beyond the boundaries of the organized earth? No. They do not. The wicked and the righteous, and, and that's unquote, and that's out of Discourses of Brigham Young. Valletta continues, The wicked and the righteous live together in the spirit world much the same as they do in mortality. Not that the righteous do the things of wickedness, not that the wicked enjoy the blessings bestowed on the righteous, but that the righteous may preach the gospel to the wicked. If they accept it, they too may lay claim upon the blessings of the Lord through the atonement. Elder Bruce R. McConkie wrote, Although there are two spheres within one spirit world, there is now some intermingling of the righteous and the wicked who inhabit those spheres. And when the wicked spirits repent, they leave their prison hell and join the righteous in paradise. Hence we find Joseph Smith saying, Hades, Sheol, paradise, spirits in prison, all are one. It is a world of spirits, the righteous and the wicked all go to the same world of spirits until the resurrection. Now moving on to verse 15, where in this section in verses 15 through 18, Alma will really clarify the meaning of the term resurrection and make sure that it's not being applied to this particular instance when we are uh, taken into this state of happiness or misery. Verse 15, now there are some that have understood that this state of happiness and this state of misery of the soul before the resurrection, in other words, during this time between death and resurrection, was a first resurrection. Yea, I admit that it may be termed a resurrection, the raising of the spirit or the soul and their consignation to happiness or misery, according to the words which have spoken. So Alma's not saying that it can be called the resurrection and that that is an appropriate definition of it but simply that, that he, it's understandable that one would refer to that as a resurrection. But he'll go on to clarify that that's not what the resurrection means in this case. 
that, that's a different thing when we die and our spirits are taken home to that God who gave us life and we're either assigned to a, a place of paradise or a place that more uh, approximates hell or is called spirit prison. Well, here is some commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual that covers the last several verses that we've read. So this, too, we'll quote again from Brigham Young, um, but I, I think it's helpful to, to go ahead and read the whole thing because it pulls from some other sources, too. The following clarification helps us understand the condition of spirit beings after death and prior to their resurrection. Quote, when the physical body dies, the spirit continues to live. In the spirit world, the spirits of the righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. A place called spirit prison is reserved for those who have died in their sins without a knowledge of the truth or in transgression having rejected the prophets. Section 138 verse 32 says that that's a differentiator for those who go to the spirit prison, that they've rejected the prophets. The spirits in prison are taught faith in God, repentance from sin, vicarious baptism for the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, and all other principles of the gospel that are necessary for them to know. If they accept the principles of the gospel, repent of their sins, and accept ordinances performed in their behalf in temples, they will be welcomed into paradise. And that quote comes out of True to the Faith. President Brigham Young helped us better understand the difference between the location of the spirit world and God's abode. Quote, when you lay down this tabernacle, where are you going? Into the spirit world. Are you going into Abraham's bosom? No, not anywhere nigh there, but into the spirit world. Where is the spirit world? It is right here. Do the good and evil spirits go together? Yes, they do. Do they both inhabit one kingdom? Yes, they do. Do they go to the sun? No. Do they go beyond the boundaries of the organized earth? No, they do not. They are brought forth upon this earth. And uh, that's, uh, again, out of the Book of Mormon Institute manual, and the third time that we've come upon uh, this statement by Brigham Young. Now, verse 16, And behold, again, it hath been spoken that there is a first resurrection, a resurrection of all those who have been or who are or who shall be down to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, we do not suppose that this first resurrection, which is spoken of in this manner, can be the resurrection of the souls and their consignation to happiness or misery. He cannot suppose that this is what it meaneth. So, he's saying that this time, when we die and we go to paradise or spirit prison in the spirit world, is the first resurrection. You cannot suppose that this is what it meaneth. Verse 18, Behold, I say unto you, Nay, but it meaneth the reuniting. So, it is resurrection here gets a little bit confusing. So Alma is saying, Behold, I say unto you, Nay, but resurrection only meaneth the reuniting of the soul with the body of those from the days of Adam down to the resurrection of Christ. That's the definition of resurrection. Now he'll come back to that definition a few verses later and expand upon the mechanics of it a little bit, uh, or the metaphysics of it is the way that Reynolds and Soljal put it in their commentary. But before he does that, in verses 19 through 21, Alma will go on to discuss the timing of this resurrection. And, And this time he is talking about the true reuniting of the soul and the body and becoming an immortal. Verse 19, Now whether the souls and the bodies of those of whom has been spoken shall all be reunited at once, the wicked as well as the righteous, I do not say. 
Let it suffice that I say that they all come forth. In other words, uh, their resurrection cometh to pass before the resurrection of those who die after the resurrection of Christ. So here Alma is differentiating between the resurrection of the righteous versus the resurrection of the wicked, and then he is differentiating between the resurrection of those who lived before Christ and those who died after the resurrection of Christ. Then in verse 20, Alma suggests that there will be those uh, who will be resurrected at the same time uh, that the Savior himself is resurrected, or uh, not, uh, not exactly simultaneously, but at that time, more broadly speaking, when the Savior is resurrected. So verse 20, Now my son, I do not say that the resurrection cometh at the resurrection of Christ, but behold, I give it as my opinion that the souls and the bodies are reunited of the righteous at the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. Ogden and Skinner have written, Implied in these verses are the several partial or intermittent judgments that occur during the post-mortal phase of our eternal existence. The righteous are those who have been baptized and remained faithful in mortality. At death they are judged worthy to be gathered to one part of the spirit world, paradise. All others go to other parts of the spirit world. Verses 13 through 14 speak of that part of the spirit world reserved for those who once knew the ways of righteousness but ultimately rejected the things of God. And imagine, again, how Corianton must feel as he's listening to this. It does not refer to those who died in ignorance. Outer darkness, or hell, is made up of those who in mortality spurned the ways of righteousness, those who defied the word of truth, those who chose to walk in their own paths or in paths of disobedience. Joseph Smith pointed out, The great misery of departed spirits in the world of spirits, where they go after death, is to know that they came short of the glory that others enjoy and that they might have enjoyed themselves, and they are their own accusers. Thus hell, or outer darkness, is both a place, a part of the world of spirits where suffering and sorrow and appropriate separation go on, and a state, a condition of the mind associated with remorseful realization. The first resurrection in verse 16 is the same one discussed by Abinadi in Mosiah chapter 15, verses 21 through 26. So coming back in verse 21 to this question about those who might be resurrected at the same time that the Savior was resurrected, those who had lived before him, Alma says, But whether it be at his resurrection or after, I do not say. But this much I say, that there is a space between death and the resurrection of the body, and a state of the soul in happiness or in misery, until the time which is appointed of God, that the dead shall come forth and be reunited, both soul and body, and be brought to stand before God, and be judged according to their works. So that much Alma does know. The broader context of all of this, which is something that Alma will build upon in the next chapter, in Alma chapter 41, is the concept or doctrine of restoration. So Alma will now move into this in verse 22. Yea, this bringeth about the restoration of those things of which has been spoken by the mouths of the prophets. So that word is used here in verse 22. And then again, that concept will be expanded upon in the next chapter. Coming now, though, back to the idea of the first resurrection. Here's some commentary from the Institute Manual. Uh, And then in the next verse, in verse 23, uh, Alma will talk about the soul and the body being restored. So more about the actual concept of uh, 
uh, resurrection and how it is part and parcel of this doctrine of restoration. So the Institute Manual says, Alma was speaking of the first resurrection in relation to earthly time. Jesus Christ would be resurrected first, followed shortly thereafter by the righteous who had lived and died from the beginning of time for our mortal earth down to the time of Christ's resurrection. This resurrection is what Alma called the first resurrection. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained that the first resurrection includes different time periods and events. Quote, While there was a general resurrection of the righteous at the time Christ arose from the dead, it is so there we have President Smith confirming Alma's idea. It is customary for us to speak of the resurrection of the righteous at the second coming of Christ as the first resurrection. It is the first to us, for we have little thought or concern over that which is past. The Lord has promised that at the time of his second advent, the graves will be opened, and the just shall come forth to reign with him on the earth for a thousand years. At the time of the second coming of Christ, they who have slept in their graves shall come forth, for the grave shall be opened, and they also shall be caught up to meet him in the midst of the pillar of heaven. They are Christ's, the firstfruits, they who shall descend with him first, and they who are on the earth and in their graves, who are the first who are first caught up to meet him, and all this by the voice of the sounding of the trump of the angel of God. That's a quote out of Doctrine and Covenants, section eighty eight, verses ninety seven through ninety eight. These are just, whose names are written in heaven, where God and Christ are the judge of all. These are they who are just men made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out this perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. And that language is from Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verses 68 through 69. Now, continuing with Joseph Fielding Smith, following this great event and after the Lord and the righteous who are caught up to meet him have descended upon the earth, there will come to pass another resurrection. This may be considered as a part of the first, although it comes later. In this resurrection uh, will come forth those of the terrestrial order who were not worthy to be caught up to meet him, but who are worthy to come forth to enjoy the millennial reign. Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles gave the following explanation regarding the first resurrection, which is also referred to as the resurrection of the just and as the resurrection of life. Quote, Those coming forth in the morning of this resurrection do so with celestial bodies and shall inherit a celestial glory. These are they who are Christ's, the firstfruits. Those coming forth in the afternoon of this resurrection do so with terrestrial bodies and consequently shall inherit that kingdom. They are described as being Christ's at this coming. All who have been resurrected so far have received celestial bodies. The coming forth of terrestrial beings does not commence until after the second coming. Now here's this remarkable verse where Alma focuses in on the resurrection itself and what it actually looks like. Verse 23, The soul shall be restored to the body, and the body to the soul. Yea, and every limb and joint shall be restored to its body. Yea, even a hair of the head shall not be lost, but all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. To this idea then that when we are resurrected, we will enjoy our profit proper and perfect frame. First this from Elder Dallin H. Oaks. He said, What a comfort to know that all who have been disadvantaged in life from birth defects, from mortal injuries, from disease, or from the natural deterioration of old age will be resurrected in proper and perfect frame. 
The assurance of resurrection gives us the strength and perspective to endure the mortal challenges faced by each of us and by those we love, such things as the physical, mental, or emotional deficiencies we bring with us at birth or acquire during mortal life. Because of the resurrection, we know that these mortal deficiencies are temporary. And uh, Elder, or now President Oaks, wrote that in a general conference report in April of 2000. And uh, now this from President Joseph F. Smith. He said, Deformity will be removed in the resurrection. Defects will be eliminated. And men and women shall attain to the perfection of their spirits, to the perfection that God designed in the beginning. It is his purpose that men and women, his children, born to become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, shall be made perfect physically as well as spiritually through obedience to the law by which he has provided the means that perfection shall come to all his children. Now this from Ogden and Skinner, as they can consider the same phenomenon, and in so doing, they too will pull from Joseph F. Smith and from Elder or President Dallin H. Oaks, but from slightly different angles. So they say, resurrection is a miraculous blessing to everyone. There is no fullness of joy possible without a reunion of body and spirit. Three prophets, Joseph Smith, Joseph F. Smith, and Joseph Fielding Smith, taught us more about how resurrection works. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, quote, All your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection, provided you continue faithful, unquote. As concerning the resurrection, I will merely say that all men will come from the grave as they lie down, whether old or young. There will not be added unto their stature one cubit, neither taken from it. All will be raised by the power of God, having the spirit in their bodies and not blood. That too from Joseph Smith. President Joseph F. Smith declared, The body will come forth as it is laid to rest, for there is no growth nor development in the grave. As it is laid down, so it will arise. Then he said, from the day of the resurrection, the body will develop until it reaches the full measure of the stature of its spirit, whether it be male or female. So that's a very uh, fascinating doctrine there of of growth uh, that can take place immediately after resurrection until uh, the body and the spirit are calibrated in that way. President Joseph Fielding Smith elaborated on the meaning of his father's words. Quote, President Joseph F. Smith was in full accord with Amulek and Alma. He taught that the body will be restored as stated in Alma chapter 11, verses 42 through 45, of course that's Amulek speaking, and chapter 40, verses 22 through 23, which we've just read. While he expresses the thought that the body will come forth as it was laid down, so this is Joseph Fielding Smith speaking of his father's quote that we just read, he also expresses the thought that it will take time to adjust the body from the conditions of imperfections. This, of course, is reasonable. But at the same time, the length of time to make these adjustments will not cover any appreciable extent of time. President Smith never intended to convey the thought that it would require weeks or months of time in order for the defects to be removed. These changes will come naturally, of course, but almost instantly. So that was kind of the next natural question that would come to us as we had read that from Joseph F. Smith. And there is Joseph Fielding Smith's clarifying teaching on that subject. President Joseph Fielding Smith also observed, quote, bodies will come up as they were laid down, but will be restored to their proper, perfect frame immediately. Old people will not look old when they come forth from the grave. Scars will be removed. No one will be bent or wrinkled. How foolish it would be for a man to come forth in the resurrection who had lost a leg and have to wait for it to grow again. Each body will come forth with its perfect frame. 
Elder Dallin H. Oaks explained that all defects and deficiencies will be corrected and resolved in the resurrection. Quote, and we've read this already, What a comfort to know that all who have been disadvantaged in life from birth defects, from mortal injuries, from disease, or from the natural deterioration of old age, will be resurrected in proper and perfect frame. The assurance of resurrection gives us the strength and perspective to endure the mortal challenges faced by each of us and by those we love. Such things as the physical, mental, or emotional deficiencies we bring with us at birth or acquire during mortal life. Because of the resurrection, we know that these mortal deficiencies are only temporary. And again, that's from President Oaks's April 2000 conference talk called Resurrection. Now, Ogden and Skinner finished this by saying, One student wrote about a sacred experience that formed part of her family scripture. She said, In about 1967, my uncle lost his right arm at the shoulder in a farming accident. I have no memory of him with his arm. My earliest memory of him was the first time I saw him after the accident. Years later, one of my aunts died. I was going to school at BYU. My mother flew here for the funeral. We were seated during the funeral, with me in the front of my mother, who was seated on my uncle's right side. During the meeting, I turned to check on my mother. I could not believe what I saw. At first, I wondered what was wrong with what I saw. When I figured it out, I turned again to double-check what I was experiencing. I saw my uncle's right arm around my mother, his hand wrapped around her right shoulder. This vision continued through the entire funeral service. When I told my mother about this experience, she replied that if he did have his arm, that is exactly where it would have been. Because of this experience, I know that the body parts will be restored and that deformities will be fixed. I know that our spirits are in perfect form, and that is what our bodies will be perfected to when that transition is made. Now in verse 24, Alma will use this word restoration again, as differentiated from the word um, resurrection. And it seems that what we're looking at here with restoration, and of course again we'll explore this in the next chapter, is a broader concept that includes resurrection, but also very much includes judgment. So he says, And now, my son, this is the restoration of which has been spoken by the mouths of the prophets. And then shall the righteous shine forth in the kingdom of God. But behold, and now here is the other way. And so for this final gesture, as Alma speaks to Corianton, teaching about resurrection, he's, he's kind of coming back up to a more global view of the whole picture and saying this is part of the restoration that has been spoken of by the prophets and he's saying that uh, when this occurs, the righteous will go in one along one path and the unrighteous along another, just as he has taught. So verse 25, And then shall the righteous shine forth in the kingdom of God. But behold, an awful death cometh upon the wicked, for they die as to things pertaining to things of righteousness. For they are unclean, and no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. But they are cast out and consigned to partake of the fruits of their labors or their works, which have been evil, and they drink the dregs of a bitter cup. That's uh, quite an image for Alma to end with, this idea of drinking the dregs of a bitter cup. And we can think about the cup that the Savior himself referred to later, 73 years later, or add 33 more years to that, to the time in mortality when he was crucified and uh, when he knelt uh, before the Father in our stead in Gethsemane and talked about whether the cup could pass from him. Then in Doctrine and Covenants section 19, he talked about his terrible suffering and uh, talked about the way in which uh, it'll be 
the unrepentance lot to experience the same suffering. So Alma is teaching that here, saying that that bitter cup must be drunk by those who remain evil. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says the following statement helps us understand what this awful death refers to. The scriptures sometimes speak of salvation from the second death. The second death is the final spiritual death, being cut off from righteousness and denied a place in any kingdom of glory. This second death will not come until the final judgment, and it will come to very few. Almost every person who has ever lived on the earth is assured salvation from the second death. So that's a a very important distinction to be made there. And several scriptural references are contained in that as well, mostly from Doctrine and Covenants section 76. Um, McConkie and Millet have said this, that is, those who drink the dregs of this bitter cup, uh, they face the full effects of the justice of the Almighty God, a justice which could have been mitigated by their own repentance through the divine grace of the Holy One of Israel. Now finally, this from Ogden and Skinner. The wicked figuratively receive the just deserts of their evil deeds, the dregs of a bitter cup. The cup in ancient scripture was sometimes symbolic of experiences of suffering. Elder James E. Talmadge wrote, Our Lord's frequent mention of his foreseen sufferings as the cup of which the Father would have him drink is in line with Old Testament usage of the term cup as a symbolic expression for a bitter or poisonous potion, typifying experiences of suffering. Dregs are sediment, the bits of matter that settle to the bottom of a container of liquid. They are the worthless or the least desirable part. Well, this is a, an amazing way and an amazing direction that Alma takes his son Corianton in, helping him see the ultimate end of his actions should he not repent, and then giving him the hope, as he will, particularly in Alma chapter 42, that repentance will be possible. But before he comes to that, he will teach him in Alma chapter 41 more broadly about this concept of restoration. For now, however, this brings us to the end of this incredible chapter that has enlightened us so much with respect to the resurrection of the dead, and that is Alma chapter 40. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and most importantly draw closer to God in our study of his word. So thank you for listening.